Our guest today is Congressman Army Bearer, MD, who has represented Sacramento County in the U.S. House of Representatives since 2013. The 6th Congressional District is located just east and north of California's capital city and lies entirely within Sacramento County. Representative Bearer is currently a member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, where he serves as chairman of the Subcommittee on Asia, the Pacific, Central Asia, and Non-Proliferation. He is also a member of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence and the Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Pandemic. Congressman Bearer is the longest serving Indian American serving in Congress. During Congressman Bearer's 23-year medical career, he worked to improve the availability, quality, and affordability of healthcare. After graduating from medical school in 1991, he did his residency in internal medicine at California Pacific Medical Center, eventually becoming chief resident. He went on to practice medicine in the Sacramento area, serving in various leadership roles for MedClinic Medical Group. Chief amongst his contributions was improving the clinical efficiency of the practice. He then served as medical director of care management for Mercy Healthcare, where he developed and implemented a comprehensive care management strategy for the seven hospital system. Congressman Bearer went on to put his medical experience to work for his community, serving Sacramento County as chief medical officer. He has lived in Sacramento County for over 20 years with his wife, Janine, who is also a medical doctor. Welcome to the Rancho Cordova podcast. My name is Charles Lego, and let's get started. So, Congressman Ami Berra, welcome to the Rancho Cordova podcast. We've been, I don't know if you know, but we've been trying to get you here for a long time. Charles, so, I know you're a tough interview, so oh, I you think do? probably, okay. no, I'm just kidding. Well, I'm really delighted that you finally um, found the time to right. come here. So let's start right now. Let me just ask you a question. You've been in Congress now for 10 years. Um, you were a sitting congressman with President Obama, President Trump. Um, so can we start off today by you giving us a snapshot of how you see the political climate in America, as you see it, because you're in the pulse of everything in Congress. So how do you see today the political pl climate in this country? You know, it's um, divisive, right? I mean, I think Very. the country, um, Congress is a reflection of the country because each of us represents one of 435 districts around the United States. And each of us as a member of Congress is a reflection of our district. So, if I start from that point, um, I see a very different world than, let's say, a Marjorie Taylor Greene sees in um, Northeast Georgia. Um, but I have to assume she's a reflection of her constituents. Right. So, I, I think that then, you know, there's a, a larger foundational challenge because I, you know, whereas 50 years ago you probably had. Um, more Democrats and Republicans living side by side. I think now what you have is, you know, if you look at the coast, if you look at the big cities, you probably, those are, tend to be very blue and you see more concentrations. But then if you look at rural America, if you look at um, rural states, those tend to be red. So I don't think you're having as much um, intersection of ideas. 
layer on top of that, you know, I grew up, we had Walter Cronkite or you had four news channels, but it was literally the same news and it was objective. It wasn't entertainment, but fast forward today, you have literally dozens of cable news sites. And if you're conservative leaning, you're watching Fox. If you're liberal leaning, you're watching MSNBC. Um, So you're not actually hearing the other side. So yeah, I think that also leads to some of the polarization. Well, you should really go back and forth and listen to both. Um, I've always been into politics and American politics to me are fascinating. Coming from England, it's very different here. A political campaign here is four years. In England, I think they announce the election and six weeks later, they have the election. So there's no time for all the back and forth. But what I have noticed is how divisive, you know, friends that you know, they might be for Trump, let's say, and you're not, and you, oh, it's like, it's like you really buck heads, and it's, it's become so, I don't, you know, during Bush, it was pretty divisive, I think, with the war and stuff, a lot of people were against it, you know, and blamed the whole, but it wasn't like it is today, I don't think. I, I, I'd agree. I mean, I think, um, I mean, you've always had divisiveness in politics, go back to civil rights, Vietnam War era, equal rights era of the 60s, but it wasn't personal, right? I right. mean, it was exactly. more on now policy and goals. Yeah. And yeah, I don't, yeah, I think President Trump makes it personal, right? right. I mean, you listen to how he ridicules right. and um, attacks individuals, his own fellow Republicans for, for that matter. Um, and I think that's changed the nature. And yeah, that, that probably is... Um, something deeper that we have to address in our community, in our right. country, is this lack of civility, right? right? I, was, you know, I was talking to one of my friends who's um, a, a veterinary doctor, um, and he was just talking about how many people are leaving the field because you know, they have their pet owners are coming in and they're just angry and yelling. And you see it in medicine as well. You see it, wow. you talk to the school districts, they're having trouble hiring teachers. You know, um, talk to our police chiefs. They're having trouble filling vacancies in law enforcement. And again, how do we become civil with one another? Like, how do we learn how to talk to one another, even if we have our differences? Like, how do we get that civility back? And that's controversial as it may sound, coming from someone who's not from this country. I definitely think that it started in 2016. I don't remember it before that. Not the way it is now. I certainly think it accelerated in 2016. Yeah. Maybe it was there in pockets and right, right. And, and the like, but certainly, yeah, President Trump, his style, and you know, I don't think he would deny it, is just to, you know, yeah, if it's... you're going to punch me, I'm going to punch you back twice as hard. Right. And, you know, there, um, and you just, you saw it in that 2016 in that primary, right. how he insulted his opponents. Right. And again, it wasn't on policy differences. It was personal attacks. Right. And, you know, the president of the United States is, has the biggest bully pulpit in the country. And if he's doing that and getting away with it, that probably um, you know, sets a framework for right. what's okay and what's not okay. So I also think the pandemic, you know, ha- you know during his presidency had a polarizing I- impact as well. Right. So um, I'm, obviously you're, you, you represent Sacramento, so we're going to talk about Sacramento, but we'll get back to the national thing. Great. So on this show, we have a tradition of really getting to know our guests. So let's start at the very beginning and tell us about your early years, where you were born, growing up, and all that kind of stuff. Great. So let me start with my parents. My um, father immigrated here in 1958 to 
to go to college at um, University of Southern California. And then my mom and oldest brother came one year after in 1959. Settled in um, Southern California. My dad um, was a chemical engineer and my mom was a, a public school teacher. And they came from India, right? They both came from yeah. India, yes. So um, my middle brother and myself were you know, born and raised lifelong Californians. Um, just grew up like any other kid, you know, played sports, um, was a, a Cub Scout, a Weeblow, a Boy Scout, um, active in, in student government. And again, just part of that American dream out there. Um, so I had a pretty normal childhood, the youngest of, of three boys. And where were you born? Where the, yeah, I was born in Los Angeles, oh, California. Los Angeles. Okay, yeah, so yeah. Um, grew up going to the beach in the summers. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, didn't really spend a lot of time thinking about where I wanted to, to go to college. My older brother was at UC Irvine. I had gone there for some dorm parties and things like that and saw the campus. It's like, ah, oh, this looks like a pretty cool place to go. So applied to um, University of California, Irvine, went there for undergrad. Um, I always thought I might go into medicine. You know, when I talked to my high school classmates, they're like, you always were going to go into medicine. Um, so, you know, was good in science, good in math, um, applied to medical school, got into a n number of schools around the country. But UC Irvine was $393 a quarter to go to med school, which is remarkable right. com compared to what kids right. today pay. So um, went there for med school. Um you know, met my wife, you know, I was studying for the, um, the MCATs and, you know, was in the library. She was in the library. It's like, hey, this is a pretty good looking woman here. Um, and, you know, we, we started dating my last two years of medical school. Um, I graduated, you know, we got married the day after I finished graduation and then moved up to San Francisco where I did my residency training in internal medicine. So you worked in the hospital doing your training because you hear doctors nowadays, right? They work and you work like horrific hours. And Yeah. So in those days, we didn't have any rules on the numbers of hours you could work. So, you know, as an intern, you're often working 100, 120 hours a week. Like you, it was um, on call for 36 hours, go home and sleep for eight, back wow. at the hospital for, you know, uh, another long shift. So it was... Um, I would not want to do it today, no. but um, certainly you learned a lot. I, and I loved being in the hospital. Here I was 26 years old, um, put that white coat on, and you know, it, you just have this privilege of trying to help people. Right. And did you specialize in anything as a doctor? Yeah, so I did my residency training in internal medicine and then stayed in San Francisco for an additional year to do a chief residency, so training um, the, and, and managing the, the, the residents that were there. During that time, my wife decided she wanted to go to medical school. So she applied um, and got into the University of California, Davis Medical School. Um, and she got into a ton of medical schools, better student than I ever was. Um, but she really liked Davis and said, hey, you ought to look for jobs up in Sacramento. So you know, um, came up here, interviewed, um, joined the Mercy Medical Group Med Clinic at that time. Um, and we moved up here in 1995, and we've never left. We love we love this area. So that when you came here, were you uh, like a practicing doctor? Yeah. So yeah. I was um, practicing in internal medicine um, in a group of about 150 doctors. Okay. Uh, affiliated with at that at time the Mercy Hospital, the, the Mercy group. Hospitals. Yeah. yeah. So um, and fairly quickly um, was interested in delivery systems. So you know about in my third year up here. Um, Mercy asked if I wanted to be medical director of care management. So of the five 
hospitals looking at um, how to set up different ways to care for our patients. So did that for a couple of years. And then the county of Sacramento asked if I had interest in being medical director for the county. And it's like, oh, that's interesting. How yeah. do we get the four systems, Mercy, Sutter, Kaiser, UC Davis, all working together to solve community issues? So did that for uh, several years. And then um, was at a conference at UC Davis, and they asked if I wanted to be the dean of admissions, if I had any interest in applying for that. So um, I love students. I love teaching. Um, and I've always been affiliated with the university. So applied for that and then you know moved over to UC Davis as the associate dean for admissions. Okay. What I saw that you were uh, the Sacramento County Chief Medical Officer, which is a very grand title. What What is that and what do you do? So I was in charge of um, – how we deliver healthcare. So Sacramento County at that time had about 225,000 uninsured. That was our estimate. And uninsured? Uninsured. So folks that wow. really didn't have. We had um, the responsibility for the, the poorest of those, the medically indigent folks. But then our clinic system, there were about nine clinics around Sacramento County, was also, you had a lot of walk-in patients that had no place else to go. So that was um, part of it. How do we care for that population? But there were lots of other things that, you know, the WIC program, um, you know, how do we uh, deliver care in our jails, negotiating the contracts with managed care companies, okay. negotiating the contract with UC Davis. So yeah, that, that was all kind of in there together. So in that position, who are you working with? The heads of hospitals? The sheriff, for instance, with the jails. Um. Yeah, so you'd, you'd certainly work with the sheriff. And sometimes um, there's – in the, the county's general fund, there's two real pots of, of discretionary spending, the sheriff's office or health and human services. So sometimes you'd have to go to battle against the sheriff, I think. Um, in those days, the sheriff was Lou Blanis, and I probably lost every one of those battles. Right. Um, and you ran against the sheriff, right? We'll get to that in a minute. But I did. You ran so, against not that sheriff, forward, but exactly. a different one. Yeah. Um, and you know, it. I learned a lot, and really, what I learned about was collaboration. Because again, our budgets were not very big, and you're right. talking about yeah, you know, maybe we had enough to take care of um, forty thousand patients, but you had you know this denominator of two hundred twenty thousand patients. Wow. So that required working with the hospital, saying, hey. We've got a common challenge here. It's not in your interest for these folks to end up in your emergency room if they have no place else to go. So let's think outside of the box. Let's try to come up with some strategies okay. to to either get these folks health insurance or you know, give them an alternative. So place you're a to medical go. fixer. You know, I I like to see what the challenges are and then try to work together because again, we've got to have collaborative solutions. So now you're at UC Davis and you're in the teaching field. Um, did you actually teach students? I did. So yeah. um, one of the the so I, throughout all of this, I continued to be a doctor. And you know, wh when I was at Davis, I would still do rounds in the hospital and you know teach in that capacity. My formal responsibilities were um, as the dean of admissions. So you have five thousand students applying to Davis at that time. You might um, send secondary applications to twenty five hundred. You might choose to interview four hundred students might offer 200 offers oh, of admission okay. to fill a class of 93. So extremely competitive process. So I was in charge of working with the faculty um, and students to kind of get that and fill that class of 93. So that was super fun. Um, but then also on the teaching side, would teach in the hospital, also taught um, in the doctoring curriculum, which is, you know, 
how do you be a doctor? It's not the hard sciences. How do you talk to people? How do you gather information? How do you work with uncertainty? Because again, all of those are the soft skills, but the skills that really make a, a doctor a good doctor. Um, so at what point in this part of your life did you decide to get into politics? So um, around 2007, pretty early on, um, I was disappointed with a lot of the policies of the Bush administration with the war and everything else um, and said, you know, I can complain about it or I can get, get engaged and, um, you know, heard some speeches of this young senator from Illinois, Barack Obama. And pretty early on in the fall of 2007, got involved in his campaign. And this was when um, my wife, who's African-American, I said, hey, I'm going to go um, campaign for Barack Obama. And she's like, he's not going to win. It's going to be Hillary Clinton or um, John Edwards, if you remember John yeah, Edwards yeah. back then. It's like, well. Which he was definitely a rising star. He, he was. Yeah. So, um, Until the National Enquirer got involved. Exactly. Yeah. So, but we you know went out there and it's like, look, I, I find um, Barack Obama to, to be inspirational. You know, he's talking about healing the country, bringing folks together. Um, and a lot of us who, you know, hadn't been intensively involved in politics, you know, got engaged in that campaign. Mostly what I was doing was fundraising and and we were able to, to get Barack Obama um, out to Sacramento in August of that year for, wow. for an event. Only time he's been in Sacramento. Wow. So, That's the only time he's been here? Yeah. So I, wow. when I became a congressman, um, I, I was with them once and we were talking about it and said, I don't know if you remember this, Mr. President, but you were out in Sacramento and what he said is, yeah, it was August. It was hot. Yeah. But at what point did you say, I'm going to run for Congress? Is that the first thing? Congress was your first Yeah. Goal? So yeah. Um, so he got elected. Um, and if you remember that November um, of 2008 when he got elected, just kind of this euphoria for yeah. a lot of us in the country right. that, okay, let's put the divisiveness behind us and let's move forward. Um, that's when I, I sat down and talked to my wife and said, you know what? I know he's going to work on healthcare. I had this um, great career in healthcare in many different capacities. I think I'm going to run for Congress. And she's like, you're nuts. You've never run for anything before. And, you know, you're going to run for Congress. It's like, yeah, you know what? I'm going to start talking to folks. And I knew most of our local elected leaders, our state and um, local leaders, and, and just went around and talked to them. And, to a T, um, everyone said, you know, with your background, you'd be a great member of Congress. And then in the next breath, they said, why don't you run for city council? Uh, why don't you run for board of supervisors? City council where? In Elk Grove? Yeah, or board of supervisors yeah. or even state office. And really what they're saying is not that I wouldn't be a great addition to Congress and bring a lot of experience. It was how are you going to get elected? Right. So – so I ran, ran in 2010 um, as a first-time candidate. Okay. Dan Lundgren obviously was a really well-known individual. Yeah, been I, the, I remember Dan Lundgren. The yeah. attorney general for yeah. the state. And, you know, 2010 was not a great year to be a Democrat running for, for any office. Um, and, you know, came pretty close but but lost by about um, seven Oh, okay. Seven so points. you lost that one. I lost oh, in okay. 2010. Um, learned a lot. Had a great time. Um, yeah, I felt like we won on every metric except the number of votes cast. And then just got right back in the race um, in January of, of 2013, January of 2011, and started running again. Yeah. So now you've been in Washington for 10 years. I would think by now, walking around and meeting all the people that we all see on TV, you've become an old hand at everything DC. So when you were first elected as a congressman and you went to DC, 
when you, you you go there for the first time, are you surprised by anything? So is it what you thought or was it as you expected? Or tell us what that experience is like when you first go to Congress. You know, so it's overwhelming, right? Yeah. So, and, and in my case, doubly overwhelming because our the race in 2012 was so close, it took about two weeks to call. So I'm on my way to, to Washington, D.C. to do orientation. The irony was Dan Lundgren was the chair of the House Administration Committee. So he's the one orient, orienting us. Um, and I didn't know if I won the election. So, you know, um, the Associated Press called the race about two weeks after Election Day was over. And all of a sudden, now you've got to figure out, I've got to set up two offices, one in Washington, D.C., one um, out here in, in in Sacramento County. You've got to hire staff. You've got to, you know, figure out what this looks like. You've got to find a place to live in, in Washington, D.C. And um, having never held elected office, it is overwhelming. So, so again, my first chore was let me hire a good chief of staff that, you know, understands and has has been around the, the place for a while. And then they could take some of that burden off of you. And then you meet all the people that you obviously you follow politics, right? So now yeah. you're meeting the people in real life. What was that? Yeah. So now you're uh, a peer with yeah, a, a exactly. lot of these folks with the Nancy Pelosi of the yeah, world and, yeah. and, and others. You know, again, I think, you know, everyone's there to help you be successful. So um, it's not that you're starstruck, but you start to realize, like, who are your mentors? Right. Who are the folks that are going to um, be your go-to folks and you know, other crazy is really crazy well you, so you don't see that right right no. away right so and our class was a pretty big class there i think i want to say there were close to 90 brand new members of congress that came in um, and those are the folks that you're going to be closest to democrats and republicans because right. you're having the shared experiences right. freshmen um and then you start to get into that first year and Again, I think we all have this notion that you're this is a highly functional place and you're going to be working on policy and getting stuff done and you start to see the divisiveness and, yeah. and some of the pettiness and um it's obviously easy for folks to get jaded or it's necessary for us to again from my perspective figure out how do we break this gridlock? How do we get out of this place and get to a place where we can actually work together on behalf of the the citizens? So now you're in Congress and you've been elected by the people here in Sacramento. So now you're going to work for them. And they obviously, now we're going to talk Sacramento. So they made a good choice because your office recently announced that since taking office in 2013, you have surpassed 16 million in casework dollars that was successfully returned right back here in Sacramento and that you resolved 26,000 cases um, of, of, casework dollars. I'm not really sure what yeah. that means, but I'm sure you'll tell us. And that you secured helping retrieved backlog veterans benefits, store tax refunds, social security, Medicare. So tell us about that. What does that mean and how do you do it? Right. So we've talked a little bit about the dysfunction in Washington, right. D.C., the chaos that you see in Congress. But early on, we made a conscious decision let's put all of our efforts into helping the people that I work for, the right. people of Sacramento County. So that's where we had an overweight focus on our district and really focused on constituent casework. So 
first step was really going out and telling folks that, hey, we're here to help. Here's what Congress can help you with. And you pointed out, um, you know, going to veterans um, organizations and talking to the, the veterans. And in fact, my district director came to us as a wounded warrior, uh, an Iraq war veteran. Um, so making sure we're intentionally hiring folks that can speak the language right. of veterans as well. Um, and just doing that and saying, hey, we're here to help. We can't solve every issue, but the federal government's a complicated thing. So if you're a senior and you're having trouble with Social Security or Medicare, um, you know, if you're someone like right now, we're inundated with passport cases and you know, helping folks kind of navigate that. And sometimes it's just a congressional inquiry saying, hey, what's going on with this immigration case or this passport case to get this bureaucracy unstuck? So, what, What's a passport case? What What is that? So let's, so let's say, um, you know, it's a pandemic, you haven't traveled and now someone wants to go travel to, to another country and they're looking at, at their passport and it's like, oh, you know, it's, it's still good for another three months. But you're not going to be able to leave the country because oh, your passport has to be I see. You know, good for, for six months. So now all of a sudden you've got your plane tickets and you're ready to fly somewhere. Is there a backlog with people? There getting, is a real backlog. Is? So right right now we're pushing um, the State Department to say, hey, you should hire up. Um, and like for a lot of Sacramento County folks, they either have to go to San Francisco, but sometimes we're sending folks all the way to Hawaii or elsewhere. Um, we ought to have our own passport office here in Sacramento. There isn't one? There's not, no. So where, where those passports are processed. So is there any sort of issues, well, a passport, apart from that, that are important to you right now? That well, relative the to Yeah, so one super important issue is um, – we passed an important piece of legislation a year ago. President um, Biden signed it into law, the PACT Act. It was the largest expansion of veterans' benefits um, in um, probably decades. Yeah. And it's to provide um, coverage for you know, whether you're an Iraq or Afghan ref, um, war veteran who was exposed to burn pits. If you're a Vietnam War veteran right. exposed to Agent Orange right. to get you those benefits. And you know, Vietnam War veterans have been um, – you know, fighting for for those benefits for a long time, so um, I would encourage if any veterans are listening to this, you know, go to the um, va.gov site and file a, a file to intent because again, you don't know what you're going to get right. or not get, but these are benefits that right. you know if you were exposed to to toxins, you deserve. Well, one thing's for sure: if you don't file, you don't get. Correct. That's yeah. for sure. Um. So like many, many other counties, Sacramento has its fair shares of issues. And I'm wondering how a representative such as yourself, you go to D.C., how do you start to work with issues? Like where does it begin? Because you're so far away, right? So are you in touch with the mayor of Rancho, the mayor of Sacramento? Like how does it work? Yeah, we work really closely with the, our local leaders, yeah. right? There are eyes and ears on the ground. Um and, you know, what I'm doing right now and, and what I've done, you know, ever since I've got elected is at the beginning of a new Congress, is actually just sit down with them. Yeah. Say, hey, what are one or two things that we could right. work on that have a federal nexus? Right now with um, the infrastructure dollars that are out there, it's like, 
look, let's get as much of the, those resources here because this is a once-in-a-lifetime right. infrastructure bill to make sure we're building the infrastructure not just for today, but you know, thinking about where we want to be 25 years from now. So, you know, that is sitting down with the board of supervisors, with the local city electeds, and really getting an idea of what their um, priorities are. So, board of super. So, Pat Hume, obviously, you know him. Yeah, well. I've known Pat for a long time, yeah, and he was an Elk Grove City, city Council, Council member. So, yeah, we've, he was here. We worked weeks. really closely together. Yeah, he was here two weeks ago. Good so guy. I told him you would come in, and hopefully, very, he said nice things. Very nice things. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Another issue that I know is a, a big issue to us here because we've had police chiefs and and especially with these young guys, and that's the plight of the homeless and the yeah. unhoused. And this is an issue that's getting worse, I think, everywhere, but here in Sacramento for sure. You just yeah. drive around Sacramento and you'll see it, but in every major city. And the cities can only do so much, I think, at a local level. And I think, is there a time when the federal government needs to be involved and step in? So what are your views on homelessness and what could a member of Congress such as yourself do to sort of alleviate it at our level, so if this, not national? So this is going to be um, my thinking about it as a member of Congress who happens to be a doctor who, yeah. um, when I was chief medical officer, medical director for the county, we ran right. a lot of the, the homeless programs. I think first we have to uh, understand some of the root causes of homelessness. Right. Uh, you know, um, yeah, housing's part of it, but a lot of it is untreated mental illness, you know, drug addiction, um, and meet the homeless folks where they are. If it's untreated mental illness, well, we've got to address those those issues. If it's um, we're, if it's drug addiction, we've got to address those issues. If it's someone who just um, lost their job and is temporarily out of work, well, that's that's a different solution. Um, we're not going to build our way out of this, though, right? Because you know we have maybe three thousand, thirty five hundred shelter beds at any given time. The last point in time count said there's at least ten thousand um, homeless out there, so it doesn't fit. So we've got to come up with creative solutions as well. Um, I don't like um, just folks setting up their tents on sidewalks. I don't think that's humane. Um, you know, if it's 105 degrees outside and someone's sleeping. So I think we ought to move those tents. We ought to put them in a more congregate setting that's safer for those unhoused individuals. I think we ought to work with the county to have wraparound services. And what I mean by that is social workers and others, case managers that are doing that deep assessment. Um, and we've got to make downtown safe again and clean so people actually want to go down there. Otherwise, we're going to have a downtown that nobody wants to go right. to. And I think that's what we're where we're headed right now. I live in downtown. And one day I come home and someone is camped right outside my house with a tent, like literally right outside my house. And I'm very sort of, um, you know, I, I, I have a lot of sympathy for people that find themselves in that situation. But then I think, okay, like how long is he going to be there? And this is someone else going to come because one comes and then they all, you know, right. next thing you've got. So I agree with you moving. Like, is there not a way that you could just put um, people that are, find themselves in that situation, they're living in tents, put them somewhere where you can put porta potties up? You can sort of make it safe. You can clean it. Is that, why is that not possible? I think it is possible. Um, and that's exactly what I would do. It's like you can't camp right here because 
that does potentially become a public safety issue for you as a, a, a resident or right. so where you live. It certainly is a public nuisance because, again, yeah, if they're camped out right in front of your door, you either have to move them, walk around them. Um, and, you know, you hear a lot of those stories from folks that are downtown. So what I'd say is you can't camp here. But here's, right. you know, a vacant area where right. you can camp. But I would also take it one step further. I'd say here's what the rules are. Here's trash cans. You can't right. just let your trash right. pile up. Here's, um, you know, porta potty so you can't just um, right. go to the bathroom wherever you want. Go use the bathroom. Because right. I also think— it, And then it's easy. It's a police, I think, well, as well, right? Well, it creates a safer environment right. for those individuals. I would also then take it one step further and say, and you know, once you're settled, um, next week you're going to meet with a counselor. Right. And they're going to ask some questions. And if folks say, well, you can't make me do that, it's like, I actually think we can because we actually want to help you right. get up on your feet, get so, back to your life. So I th I actually think that's a more compassionate approach than saying, well, we're not going to do anything. Well, Congressman, you make that sound very easy. So why does it not happen? Well, I think this city council, um, not the Ranch Cordova City no, Council, no. the Sacramento right. City Council has decided that they're not going to move anyone. Right. And I think that's a mistake. And again, we'll talk a little bit about the police chiefs that we've had here, but we've had Kathy Lester, the Sacramento police chief. And that's one of the biggest issues that she faces is what they can and cannot do, you know, with yeah. people that find themselves in that Look, situation. I, I'm a big supporter of um, police chief um, Lester. You know, we've talked about this, Matt. Um, I think she's, um, I think the city council should allow her and her yeah. staff to do some enforcement right. again in a compassionate way right. but you know if someone clearly is schizophrenic and you know they're you know posing some uh, um, public health risk if someone's no, no, actively be, high yeah. or yeah. using drugs i'm not sure when it be it became okay to to not be right. a little bit more forceful. We're not talking about taking people to jail. We're talking about taking people to an environment to where they can get help. Yeah. So another issue that I feel can be attributed to homelessness, and it's people that I know, and that's the lack of affordable housing. Sure. Um, there's a shortage. I think every major city has a shortage. And the housing costs in the rental sector are insane. I don't know if you've ever looked what the cost of a one-bedroom apartment is here, but it's insane. Um, so what can be done both locally and, you know, federally to, to just bring this under, because at what point, like if someone is working at Walmart, right. And they're getting, I don't know, 15, 18, whatever dollars an hour, $20, even 20 wouldn't do it. How do you afford to live and pay rent? So, so I think we've got to come up with some creative solutions, right? So and it's not even just the person working at, at Walmart making fifteen, eighteen dollars an hour. Yeah, you know, I think there are folks that are working yeah, eighty no. hours a week yeah. and, and making a little bit more, and they just get. Yeah. So some of that's increasing the housing stock for those that um, have good jobs, working class incomes, um, and I think that's one component. Then there's the folks that are working in um, low paying minimum wage jobs or are intermittently working. What does that look like and how do you create housing stock? That means we've got to have some flexibility in our zoning laws and you know, make it a lot easier and less expensive to, you know, for developers to quickly put up some of that, that housing. Some of that could be federal tax credits to make it easier to build, could be state tax credits. 
Also, you know, big fan of building higher density housing, studio apartments, et cetera, around um, transit hubs. So in this case, in Sacramento, light rail stations. So you have folks that, you know, maybe you have fewer parking lots so you can build more units, but you're also then encouraging them to use light rail. A lot of that's working through the bureaucracy. And, you know, we do live in California and there are a lot of rules and regulations. Right. So, you know, we want to follow those rules. But sometimes in crisis situations like this, you really have to think about how do you build, but potentially build differently. I mean, I also, you know, what if you had more congregate space? And what I mean by that is, you know, folks had their private um, space to live in, but not every unit had its own kitchen. Um, maybe you had a congregate um cooking space. And again, not going to work for everyone, but yeah, I think it might work for a lot of folks right. that otherwise wouldn't have any options. Another issue is crime and law and order. Um, so I'm curious, as a representative in Congress of Sacramento, do you stay in touch with what's going on here? Are you in tune with crime, law and order here? Um, do you keep in touch with the various police chiefs? And how can you or do you advocate on a national level to help um, combat law and order? So we had Sheriff Jim Cooper was here, as I mentioned, and his big thing is guns. That's his biggest problem he's finding is getting guns off the street. Um, Chief Lester, same thing, guns. And then the homeless issue was a big one. So um, what can you do? Yeah, so I think we can do a, a couple of things. So if we're talking about um, community safety, and and I would put gun violence in, in, in that category, I think there are things that, yeah, that is a, a congressional issue. Obviously, we see these mass shootings in schools, and, you know, it, it's a shame that we live in a country where our kids have to learn active shooter drills. I mean, that wasn't the case when I was going to elementary school. Um, well, I'll tell you it, something as someone that's not from this country, which is staggering to me. If you're 18, you cannot go and buy a beer until you're 21. Right. In England, at 18, you can buy a beer. But you can go and get a gun. And not only can you get a gun, you can get an assault weapon, which is what yeah. the military uses. Now, where does that come from? You know, I think that comes from um, – the, there's a culture of the Wild West and, uh, and <laughs> of guns. an assault so, rifle? Yeah. I don't, so, again, I've and voted I know you multiple, voted for the ban on assault yeah, rifles. Yeah, I've voted right? multiple times. But, again, let's just cut through the politics. Um if you feel strongly that you need to own that assault rifle, I'd say, okay, well, let's have come with some rules. You can't just take that assault rifle home, but it's your gun, but you've got to keep it locked in a safe at a gun range. So if you want to go right. fire that, right. like that to me is a reasonable compromise. Yeah. I, I'm not a gun owner. I don't, um, but I don't want to take, you know, if you, I don't want to judge you. If someone wants to own guns, right. great. I don't want those guns used in crimes, though. I want to keep our community safe. I think schools should be the safest place for our kids, and um, we should be ashamed that right now we're worried about schools. Um, so how can we have reasonable gun laws? Um, I also then, you know, so for some of the other issues, I do think, you know, um, public safety goes hand in hand with homelessness and you know, some of that is, um, you know, it's concentrated downtown a little bit, but also in the American River Parkway, other places. You know, these are public spaces where we should all um, want, want to go and feel safe. And if we don't feel safe, we're not going to go there. Right. So I agree with Chief Lester that, you know, these are things that we've got to address. 
And are you in touch with the police chiefs like Elk Grove, Sacramento? Yeah, we meet regularly. Um, and yeah, they've got my my number. I've got their numbers. Um, you know, Jim Cooper's a, a an old friend, and and have gotten to know Kathy Lester um, very well. You know, know the DA Tinho, and you know we text all the time. And you know, again, because. I think we all have the same mission. We want our region, our community to be the best place to live, but we also want it to be a really safe place. So another, and I was going to ask you this later, but I'll ask you now. Something that I'm curious, you see on television, you'll see a congressperson, typically, you know, maybe he's a Republican. And when a school shooting happens or something horrific, they seem to be well, yeah, it was very sad, but, you know, we need to keep the assault rifles and all this going. Privately, when you talk to them, how are they? Are they like that in private or is this is it a political thing? You know, it, I don't want to generalize. There are some that, you know, I, I think if the debate is all guns or no guns and that's where it becomes – that's just not going to see any progress. If on the other hand, we can reframe the debate and say, our goal is to keep our community safe. Our goal is to keep our kids safe and our schools safe, um, to make sure that folks that own guns, you know, legally have a right to those guns. So we don't want guns getting in the hands of terrorists or folks that are mentally unstable, et cetera. If we could reframe it, then we could work on policy that are not about taking your guns away or, or having no gun rules, but rather about, you know, if someone's suicidal, maybe there should be a cooling off period yeah. where someone can assess them or someone is homicidal or, right? So, I mean, an area that we have seen some progress in Congress uh, are these red flag laws where if I'm a doctor and I see a patient come in and I think they're incredibly depressed and maybe suicidal, I can actually notify uh, someone to go in and and assess, and I know they have guns in their homes to do an assessment. We're not taking away their due process rights, but you know, I think it is my responsibility if I think someone's suicidal or homicidal to to try to intervene. So now moving on to healthcare, obviously something you know a little bit about. Um, you're a physician. You've worked at a very senior level in the medical world here in the county, and you're also a strong advocate of healthcare reform. And you have worked to improve access to healthcare and to lower the costs. I personally know people who struggle with healthcare costs. They're too expensive. I also know people that don't have healthcare. Um, and then the price of drugs are unattainable. And then preventative care is pretty much non-existent if you don't have healthcare. So what are your views? How can we make healthcare? And I know this is an impossible question, but how can we make healthcare I happen to believe that it's a right that as a human being, if you're sick, you can go and to the doctor and not worry if you can pay right. for it. How can we fix that? So I think let's make that basic assumption. Um, everyone has the right to, to health care. We've already made that. If someone has a heart attack, it doesn't matter whether you have health insurance or don't have health insurance. You walk into an emergency room, they're going to take care of you. All right. Let me ask you this. Someone becomes sick, gets up, and they're sick. They go to somewhere, and they say, oh, you know what? You have cancer, and you don't have health care. Now what? Well, again, we're going to try to get get that care delivered to them. The issue here, though, is who pays for that. Right. Right. And I would argue that every um, person who has health insurance – 
part of the cost of your health insurance, which goes up on a regular basis, is to cover the cost of the uninsured. I actually think if we want to start lowering the cost of healthcare, it'd be better for us to find that cancer earlier or even prevent that cancer. Right. So if we can shift the healthcare delivery system to actually keeping people healthy, right, to you know pr- more preventive care, if you have diabetes, be- it's better for you to be on those medications and manage your diabetes, even if you're uninsured, than to wait until you lose a limb or you lose your eyesight or because then you will get insurance. But now all of a sudden, it's much more costly to care for you. So right now, if we could, we have a healthcare system that's designed to take care of the sick, but not to keep people healthy. And you'll see that maybe 20% of patients drive 80% of the cost. Again, I think we've got this all backwards. We ought to focus on health. We ought to focus on lifestyle. We ought to focus on you know, identifying disease earlier and then better managing the disease. And the only way you can do that is if everyone has access. So this may be a stupid question, maybe. Um, you ran the county healthcare. Is it expensive to, if, if let's say that the county said, we're going to have free preventative healthcare, meaning that you, you can go to a doctor and get a checkup. Is that expensive? It's expensive, but it's less expensive than saying, hey, wait until you have the heart attack and then we'll take care of you. Right. Um, it's less expensive to say, let's prevent so the heart attack. So it's more expensive to do nothing. It's, yeah, but the problem is, we don't reimburse for the prevention, but we'll pay for all the hospital costs right. and everything once you've had the heart attack. Like the incentives seem perverse. The environment and climate is something else you're passionate about. Now, you're a vocal advocate for environmental protection and you've supported efforts to combat climate change. It seems to be getting hotter every year. I've told you earlier, I lived in Palm Springs for 20 years. And I remember being in Palm Springs when it was 108, 15, 20 years ago. And everybody, whoa, it's 108. It's the hottest it's ever been. Today, 120 is normal. And it's a normal thing, 120. So that to me shows that we've gone from 108 to 120. So what does that mean? Do we go from 120 to 130? And when does it stop? Yeah, look... Um, global warming, climate change are emergencies right now. And, you know, we're already losing this, right? Look at, you know, we're sitting here talking, look at the devastation on Maui and how quickly that happened. And that's happening, you know, in Greece, all around the world. Everywhere. Um, And it's not just the warming. You're seeing these mass, um, you know, more hurricanes, more tornadoes, um, and record freezing too at, at times. So there's just there's an urgency. You know, we know humans contribute to to the the warming planet. Carbon contributes to the warming planet. I think there is some urgency to start to decarbonize our our future. What what does that look like? Um, it looks like investing in renewable energies. It looks like investing in potentially a hydrogen economy, um, things that can start to reduce the carbon footprint. But we've got to do more than that. There's already a lot of carbon in the atmosphere that's sequestered up there. We should be investing in um, the research to understand how do we degrade that carbon? How do we actually start reversing? Can it some be of done? You know, I don't know that we can do it effectively right now right. at scale, right. but I'm a firm believer, you know, 
in the 60s, you know, President Kennedy challenged us to put a person on the moon, and you know, we put a man on the moon. What is it going to look like when that kid born three weeks ago is 80 years old? Where is the planet going to be? Yeah, I don't. I, I want to be optimistic. I want to think that we will make those discoveries that will allow us to um, degrade that carbon that's already in the, the atmosphere that will allow us to cool the planet. And, you know, I think we're in. So you think that's, that's the angle, degrade what's there? Like did, basically give it a vent to. Yeah, but also, again, um, yes, start that breakdown. Yeah. You know, folks are talking about. In, capturing carbon, injecting it back into the ground. Um, again, we're an ingenious you know, species. I no, think yeah. if we put our minds to it, right. if we the whole world, work in collective I mean, yeah, humanity, yeah. that we could solve these issues. So I see uh, Congress and senators, congressmen and senators, uh, and they just completely deny that it's even an issue. So do you come – first of all, do you, you must come across them, right? You must talk to – you talk to each other. Like they come to you, oh, Amy, I mean, this is it's not happening. It's What do you say to them? Yeah, so um, my first five terms in Congress, I was on the science um, committee. Right. And, you know, we were in the minority my first six years, and that's the committee that's supposed to be working on these issues, understanding these issues. So just to get them to agree that the planet was warming, when you could just look at the data, it's like everyone knows how to read a thermometer. Right. So, at least let's agree that it's warming. Right. There, it is better today, I think, um, because a lot of red states, Republican states, are are the ones that are facing the biggest impact of global warming. So it's in a better place. But you know, for the life of me, I'm not sure why there's not the same urgency with um, many of my Republican friends as as I feel right now as a Democrat. Is it real though? Or is it? Yeah, I think that I, I, I think that no, they I think believe that, it. I think there's a segment of the majority that actually believe the climate's not changing, wow. that this is a hoax. I think the the vast majority though understand that it, it is changing, and that you know that there are human impacts of why it's changing, and we ought to address this. Another um, issue, which I know you're a strong supporter of, and you were a supporter of President Biden's infrastructure bill, and we've talked about the money that that sort of bring in. Sacramento is a major city that constantly needs improvement to its infrastructure. As a representative here and on a federal level, how important of an issue is that to you? And what can what do you do or can you do to sort of how do you bring the money here, the infrastructure money? Yeah, so hugely important. If if I think about um the last decade in the Sacramento region, I think um, it's been one of growth. And that accelerated dur during the pandemic. And I think our future is incredibly bright. Look at, you know, think about Ranch Cordova, you know, the, the homes that are going up here, the jobs that are coming right. to Ranch Cordova. I actually think the the suburbs, you know, whether that's Elk Grove, Rancho, Folsom, El Dorado Hills, Roseville, are doing incredibly well. Downtown Sacramento is not. Um, but as more people move up here, as more jobs come to, to Rancho or Elk Grove, we've got to build that infrastructure. So there's a connector project. We've been very active in you know, widening Grant Line and getting those dollars up for um, Zinfandel and White Rock Road to, to make it easier for folks to move around. I grew up in Southern California, and I saw what happened when folks moved to the Inland Empire. 91 Freeway became a parking lot every right. day. 
I don't want that for Sacramento. Right. So my job is to go out there and work with the, the, the cities, the counties, SACOG, to say, let's get those resources here. You know, one project we're also working on is now that I represent um, half of the city of Sacramento, folks have talked about light rail going to the airport one day. You, know, you can't actually go to the airport unless you know where light rail is going to cross the American River. So we're working pretty closely with the city of Sacramento to say— That's just a bridge, what right? It, what, what does that look like? Well, it's a bridge, but it may take a decade to, right. to secure the federal funding for it. And it's going to take federal, state, local um, you know, dollars. So what does that look like? Um, but this once-in-a-lifetime federal infrastructure bill is bipartisan— um, is once in a generation. So let's get our fair share here. And, you know, we've been pretty successful. We got, you know, 40-plus million dollars to build a new airport tower, um, you know, out of, out of the airport. You know, we're working on additional connector funding. You know, we're working on funding for bike trails and bridges and, and all of that. And I think Sacramento is really competitive to get that. So to close out local topics, what is the most pressing issue for you in your district? Yeah, I think in my district, again, um, the suburbs, so cities like Rancho Cordova are doing, I, I believe, very very well. Yeah. You know, Rancho kind of grew up as a city where a lot of people commuted to, to go to work. Now you're starting to build the, the, the houses so folks can live and right. work here. I think Folsom's doing really well, although that's not my district any longer. Um, so the suburbs in this region, I think, are doing very well. Um, but then, you know, now I have the the part of the city of Sacramento north of the American River. Um, city of Sacramento is not doing a, as well. And how do I work with those local officials to address those issues of homelessness, to use the bully pulpit that I have to you know, help address some of the, the infrastructure needs? And, and who's your yeah. point there? Uh, the mayor? You know, talk to the mayor. Or the city I, but, manager. But also, you know, talk to the city manager. I'll talk to um, individual city council members that have an overlap with, with my district. Do the same thing in the suburbs. Um, and then also, you know, Rich Desmond's a you know, close friend, and I think he's been a great board chair. So talk to, um, you know, Supervisor Desmond, uh, as well as, you know, Sue Frost. Um, and Pat Hume, obviously, is a, a, a close friend. So, you know, it's really that nexus of, um, a partnership with your local electeds. So now I cannot have a politician here without talking national stuff. Um, so let's move on to national issues. One issue that I believe is important, not only for America, but for the world, I think, is the relationship between China and the U.S. And I've heard you speak about it, and I think you've addressed that you know, it definitely could be a problem. You said on the House um, Committee on Foreign Affairs, which uh, you, you must talk about it. What are your views on the current relationship today between America and China? And in particular, how is Taiwan factoring into all of this? And how dangerous can that get? Sure. So um, I'm a senior member on the Foreign Affairs Committee, yeah. and I'm the senior Democrat who has responsibility for Asia and the Pacific. So we do spend a lot of time. Right thinking and talking about China, but also the broader region. Also, I'm a new member on the Intelligence Committee, so have access to information and intelligence that you know most of the other members of Congress don't. So that kind of augments, um, you know, what are the threats? What do we have to do to, to mitigate those threats? 
Um, I think the competition with China is very real. Um, the hope is it's competition, not confrontation, because I don't think, um, you know, a, a direct confrontation with China would be good for no. anyone. Um, and would that's not going to be, be an Iraq thing. That's yeah, gonna that's going to be gonna, bigger. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that will be um, incredibly disruptive yeah. to everyone's everyday life. Yeah. So the goal here is to avoid that. Um, I also worry a lot about China. And you know, my biggest worry right now is the Chinese economy is not that great. Right. I mean, there's a lot of red flags. And those are in, in such a close society as China is, those are the red flags that we can actually see. So that, to me, suggests it's a lot worse than you know, what, what we have access to. Um, on the flip side, the U.S. economy is actually the strongest in the world right now. Unemployment is low. Wages are rising. Um, inflation starting to come down, and I think we're in a really good spot. I think there was a reason why the Secretary of Treasury, Janet Yellen, went to China, because it's not in our interest for the Chinese economy to tank. That will take all of us down um, and perhaps certainly pull us into a recession, maybe a depression. <coughs> so, you know, I think that's one of the more urgent things. And then the second is, you know, the status quo with Taiwan in the region has really been prosperous for everyone, right? Japan, Korea, um, the Southeast Asian nations, but China most of all. We're not the ones asking to change the status quo. I mean, let's you know um, keep kind of this autonomous island of, of Taiwan. Um, so I think that's our message. And I guess the third piece is even if our relations aren't that great right now, we still have to have open lines of dialogue. We um, we put on a film festival here, and recently we had a couple of interns, and one of them was um, a girl from Sac State who's from Taiwan. She's gone back. And when I met with her, I talked to her a little bit, and she tells me that they're on constant alert in Taiwan. They do drills all the time, that China's one day just going to invade. Do you think that's a possibility? You know, again, our hope is to discourage that. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I was in Taiwan in April of this year, so a couple you months were? ago. Yeah. yeah. And you know, while we were there, it was right after um, President Tsai, the president of Taiwan, visited with the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy. Right. So there were warships and drills um, going on around us. I'd say it was relatively calm in, in Taiwan, but there is some urgency to make sure that the people of Taiwan are ready to defend themselves, right. um, that they've got the means to defend themselves. And, and Ukraine is a, a great example. I was yeah. in Kyiv. Yeah, we're going to talk about Ukraine next. But let okay. me just ask you, do you think that President Biden should have so publicly and forcefully said that the America will militarily defend Taiwan. Do you think that was a good idea? You know, President Biden's going to say what President right, Biden's going to say. <laughs> um, I think that's probably where his values are because I think President Biden is going to defend democracy. Yeah. And Taiwan is a democracy. And I think it's important for the United States as the world's oldest democracy to be prepared to defend democracy around the world. And do you think they would if Taiwan was, if China set foot on Taiwan? What, you know, what does that mean? America is going to send troops or what does I it mean, mean? Strategic deterrence means we have lots of options, right? There's economic deterrence, there's economic impact, there's certainly military options. So I think we should keep all options on the table. But the goal here is not to have – like that's not in China's interest, right. right? Especially 
as their economy's weak right now, right. it's not going to make it easier. Right. So our goal would be let's just keep the status quo. Okay. True politician. The war in Ukraine that's going to be going on for eight months, and there seems to be no end in sight. In January, as you said, you went as a part of a bipartisan delegation, which I think was led by George Meeks, right? Yeah, the, Greg Meeks. Yeah. Oh, Greg Meeks. Um, so first of all, tell me what. Tell me about Ukraine. What was you, have you never been there before? I would imagine, and you're going there during the middle of a war. So or, tell us. Or actually, we went right before the war started. So it was. Oh, so it was January before. It, it was um, a little over a year ago. Okay. So um, it was two weeks before the war started, okay. um, and you know it was because our intelligence community had information that they released publicly. And we firmly believe that Vladimir Putin was going to invade. Yeah, you know, I think some of the signals that were coming out of Ukraine is they didn't believe that he would do that because, again, there's it was a foolish decision on his part, which we've seen um, over this last year. But we were there. It's like, what do you need? You got to get ready. Um, and you know, some of the impressions that I left with, it doesn't surprise me that they're defending their country. You know, what I learned both talking to the you know, President Zelensky, talking to their, their cabinet ministers, but also talking to the people in, in, in bars and restaurants, it was um, – they have an identity as um, Ukrainians. They, they want to live side by side with the Russians. They have a long shared history. But they don't see themselves as Russian. They see themselves as U Ukrainians. And they were very adamant that they were not going to live under Russian rule. So – yeah. Um, so the fact that they they're stepping up and fighting as hard as they are doesn't surprise me one bit. I mean, I think they will fight um, until the end, and that's why Russia's already lost this right. war. Right. Um, when you were there, did they know it was two weeks before? Did they know it was happening? It was coming. I mean, we knew it was coming, and I think we were trying to impart to them that sense of urgency. I don't. I think their public was aware, but I don't think they actually believed that Putin was going to invade. And did you meet with President Zelensky? We did, yeah. Yeah, and how did you find him? You know, I actually found him, um, you know, when he first got elected, he was an actor, right. uh, you know, uh, and first-time president. And he, has, he, um, and he had a perfect phone call, right? Exactly, <laughs> yeah. right. Um, you know, he impressed me. Yeah. Right? And I, th I think everything he's done since then, inspiring a country, yeah. leading a country— has been the the right thing thing to no, do. I think it's been really impressive. Everybody has seen the growth in him. I yeah. think from those days. Should a, should the U.S. continue to assist um, Ukraine the way we are? I think the U.S. with Europe with other democracies around the world have to continue to stand with the people of Ukraine and the government of Ukraine to allow them to defend themselves. And then I see certain members of Congress from the other side, opposing party to you, that say we should not. What do you say to those guys when they tell you? Yeah, so th this is not your father's Republican Party here. Um, you know, the, the Ronald Reagan Party would always have defended democracy around the world. I would make the argument that um, says it, it, if we're not willing to support um, people who are fighting for their own freedom, it's not um, American soldiers that are fighting and dying. It's Ukrainian soldiers that are fighting and dying for their own freedom and civilians and civilians yeah. um, we like our values should support those individuals because what we're talking about is democracy and freedom because it might be Ukraine today if Ukraine falls 
China's probably much more likely to say, okay, well, let's so go after Taiwan. Taiwan. And, you know, then, you know, there is this fight of democracy, of freedom, of the ability to determine our own paths forward versus autocracy, which is clearly what you see out of one person, Vladimir Putin, deciding to invade un unprovoked another country. I see Xi Jinping headed in that same direction. I don't want that to be the 21st century that our kids grow up in. And what do they say to you when you tell them that? You know, I, again, I still think the majority of the Republican Party, you know, will stand together and, and think it's incredibly important for us to, to support Ukraine. I think you will see fringes on the, the – it's bigger on the far right, but I think you also see some folks on the far left saying, hey, wait a minute, why are we spending all this money? So you're on the Intelligence Committee. How does it end? How do you see it ending? You know, none of us knows for certain. You know, we saw, you know, you know a few weeks ago back in June, um, you know, the the Wagner Group and you know, Progrosin, right. um, you know, potentially overthrowing Putin. So, at least know, threatening to anyway. At least threatening to. Yeah. But, you know, there was a period of time that folks were a little bit worried. That suggests to me how weak Putin's hand is right now. Um, I mean, my hope would be that you can negotiate a ceasefire. Um, because, as you, Charles, you pointed out, a lot of civilian deaths, a lot of innocents. Um, this is not good for anyone. The disruption of food supplies, grain shipments, again, that's um, impacting you know, food security around the world. So I would hope we could get to a ceasefire. If Putin is still you know, going to be in charge of Russia, then you probably have to give him an off-ramp where he saves some face. Um, and I don't think there's a scenario where President Zelensky can say, okay, you can keep this part of Ukraine. So it's, you know, it's not easy. You hear that 200,000 200, Russian troops have died. Do you think that's true? Uh, it could be more than 200,000. Yeah. So I, I do think the Russian casualties have been huge. I think the Russian military has been exposed, the, you know, the level of corruption, you know, the, the poor equipment that they have, the poor training that they have. Um, I don't think the Russian troops want to be there. No. So now we'll quickly switch to the upcoming election. Um, do you think Trump will be the uh, the nominee? You know, right now, all indications are that he's the, the nominee. Lots can happen between yeah. now and, you know, the, the start of voting next year. Um, you know, you could see the Republican field consolidate, you know, to, to much smaller. And then if in the Republican primaries, it's President Trump versus Tim Scott or something like that. So I was going to ask you, so if I was to tell you, you have to give me one of these three guys to who will give the, the run to, to President Biden, Governor DeSantis of Florida, uh, Chris Christie of New Jersey, former governor, or Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, who will be the more formidable against President Biden out of those three? Yeah, I think Tim Scott and um, Chris Christie, they don't scare me. And I think they would be tough uh, opponents. I think President Biden would beat, um, you know, Ron DeSantis. I think he also would beat the, the two others because I think, you know, President Biden or I know President, we have a great um, track record to, to run on. I mean, those first two years of the Biden administration were the, the, the best two years of any president in my lifetime. And experience does matter. I mean, yeah. folks can talk about age as much as they want. I don't want a rookie on the field right now. Right, right. I want the most experienced and you must individual. Have been, and you must have been around president. How do you, 
Is he the way people say he? To me, he doesn't seem that way. How is he no, when I, you're in his presence? I know President Biden very well. You know, been to two state dinners at the White House recently. Um, I'm one of his 50 campaign advisors, so the folks that have to go out and campaign for him, I think he's vibrant. I think yeah. you know he, he's um, you know sharp. He's also surrounded by a great group of. Um, very experienced individuals, and no one person runs a country. But look at the collective total of what he and his team right. and all of us no, working with is. them has accomplished. And right. you know, I, I think, think this he is has a remarkable a great team around yeah. him for sure. Uh, and just finally, as we get to the end, the Senate race. Who's your pick? Yeah, so I've endorsed Adam Schiff. Adam so Schiff? Adam's a close friend. I'm friends certainly with Barbara Lee and yeah. Katie Porter. Um, I just think, you know, from the national security perspective, you know, Adam was chair and ranking member on the Intelligence Committee. A big part of what you do in the Senate is protecting our country. Right. And no, I like Adam Schiff. So, yeah. so I think Adam would. I be like a good all three senator. of them. Yeah, but Adam Schiff, I think you're right. Would to me is the most qualified. Finally, very quickly, how does a congressman get bitten by a fox? How, you know, does, how does that happen? <laughs> I, as I said when that happened, I expect to get attacked by Fox News. Right. Um, but I don't expect but to get— But were you just walking and it just uh, Yeah. I was just I was walking along on the hill and felt something nip at the back of my ankle. Wow. Jumped around thinking I was going to see a small dog, and it's a fox, and that fox kept coming at, at me. Wow. I'm glad I had my umbrella with me because if— um, was able to to keep him away, and then he ran off. That fox was caught. Um, it did yeah, have rabies. Um, it did have rabies. It did have rabies. So I had to go through did all it those shots as well. When it you know, it? I didn't see um, any blood or anything like that, but there were some abrasions. And when I went to the attending physician on the hill, they're like, "Now you don't take any chances with rabies." So, wow. Yeah. So what's next for Congressman Nami Bearer? You, you're running for a fourth term next year, right? Yeah. Or not the fourth term. It'll be a, yeah, it'll be my seventh Seventh, term. yeah. And you're running against five Republicans. Who is who is your greatest challenger? I could tell you their names. I have them down, but yeah. you told me. You know, you? Uh, um, we'll see how all this shakes out. I mean, what I can do is if I continue to – you know, be available, support the the folks that are my constituents, represent them um, well in Congress. Then I think they'll they'll reelect me. So yeah, I am going to run for reelection. You know, I, I think my record stands for itself. Well, you I'll tell you your record. So I, I have it here. Twenty eighteen, ten points. You won by, then you won by thirteen points, and then you won again by ten points. So that's a pretty good record, right? I think so. Not like it's yeah. close. Yeah, but my again, my record of. Yeah, the beauty about this job is your constituents get a chance to hire or re rehire you every two years. So, right. yeah, and that's based on your track record of of helping folks, and no. so that's my priority so, along with making sure. And Joe every Biden two gets years, you have to do this. I mean, what yeah. that must be that must be tough. Yeah, but I think it's it it forces you to be present and connected to the people that you yeah. work for, the folks of Sacramento County. Well, Congressman, I really do thank you for being here. Um, I don't know if they've tipped you off, but we always finish with a quick round fire of fun questions. So if you'll indulge me, I'd like to, Great, to ask go for you. It. So what personally drives you? You know, I think, um, you know, finding peace and happiness. Yeah. And what mistakes have you made? You know, I think um, we all make mistakes where we, where we fall down, but it's not not making mistakes. It's what you learn from those mistakes. What is one word others would use to describe you? Um, balanced. 
balanced? And what's one word you would use to describe yourself? Could be the same thing, I guess. Centered. Centered. Do you have any hidden talents? Um, I'm working on my golf game. So, golf? So Are it's, you good? It's a good one. I, I would not say I'm good, but I'm getting better. You should have a game with President Trump. <laughs> Go and, uh, it would be an interesting yeah. game. Yeah. What is one thing about being a congressman that has surprised you? Um, you know, so take the cameras away. I do think most of the members, Democrats or Republicans, actually get along well. Well, that's good to hear because it doesn't look that way. Right. But they do? Yeah, I think the majority do. Now, you have the the folks on the far right, the folks on the far left that I call performative artists that seem to want the cameras, do you get want into the likes. Do you get into Marjorie Greene's space? I mean, are you around her? I, um, no. No. So I'm not sure she's one of the ones that, you know, get along with, with folks. But again, the vast majority of, you know, I travel with a lot of Republican members, get along with them, you know, try to understand their districts. And they're like anyone else, just right. you know, trying to care for their constituents. Well, uh, Representative Congressman Ami Barra, thank you for being here on the Rancho Cordova podcast. I know you're a super busy guy, especially when you're visiting home. So I definitely thank you for the time that you spent with us today. Great. Charles, thanks for having me on. Be well. So thank you for tuning in. Please visit our website, which is www.therancocordovapodcast.org. Leave us any comments or suggestions. And until next time, I'm your host, Charles Lego. Charles Lego.